This episode is brought to you by Audi Canada. The Canadian Medical Association has partnered with Audi Canada to offer CMA members preferred incentive on select vehicle models. Purchase any new qualifying Audi model and receive an additional cash incentive based on the purchase type. Details of the incentive program can be found at audiprofessional.ca. Explore the full line of vehicles available to suit your lifestyle. The Audi driving experience is like no other. Buprenorphine naloxone, sold under the brand name Suboxone, amongst others, is used to treat opioid use disorder. Opioid epidemic that is far from being under control, it's important for physicians to be up to date on the latest information about this drug and its use in Canada. I'm Dr. Neil Chanchlani, Associate Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today, I'm speaking with two of the authors of a practice article published in the CMHA called Five Things to Know About Buprenorphine Naloxone. Dr. Tina Hugh is a family medicine resident physician at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, and Dr. Adam Pyle is a staff family physician at St. Michael's Hospital and also practices emergency medicine at Lake Ridge Health Oshawa in Oshawa, Ontario. They are joining me to discuss their article. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Let's start with introductions. So my name is Tina. I'm a resident physician at St. Michael's Hospital at University of Toronto. Um, for this article, one of the reasons why we decided to write this is because for my residency project, we were actually looking at evaluating a program in the emergency department where patients with opioid use disorder were offered buprenorphine naloxone and rapid access addictions follow-up. And my name's Adam. Uh, I work as a lecturer for U of T and have a family practice at St. Michael's Hospital in downtown Toronto. Uh, I also work as an adjunct assistant professor for Queen's University and practice emergency medicine in Oshawa. And uh, I would echo the fact that uh, I think this project came about largely because of a problem we were having in the Durham region with increased overdoses presenting to the emergency department. There was a need recognized within the broader uh, strategy of the Durham region to combat the opiate crisis, whereby we would offer patients uh, you know, access to this program in the emergency department in order to offset repeat visits and facilitate care and, uh, and ideally improve outcomes. And you talk about the need being quite local at the moment for the initial project. Why do you think this is so important for readers of the National Journal and across Canada? Yeah, so even though this is a problem that certainly we face locally, uh, we recognize that it's not an isolated issue and that across Canada there are pockets, certainly, but uh, a global trend uh, across the country towards increased opiate uh, use and misuse. Uh, and this has been flagged in a number of jurisdictions as a public health crisis. Uh, and so we were hoping that our model of care may help others uh, if it turned out to be successful and beneficial to patients. And we also recognize that there was some work being done on this in the United States and Europe, and there were pockets of you know, emergency departments in, in Canada who were trying out different things to combat this at the point of care. Uh, and so we were hoping to fit into that broader milieu and contribute something that may be beneficial and that could be uh, extendable and applicable in other jurisdictions. Who did you intend the practice article to be read by? Who's the main audience for this? The main audience for this article is uh, physicians as well as nurse practitioners. What is buprenorphine naloxone? 
So buprenorphine and naloxone, or the trade name Suboxone, is the combination of a high-affinity partial mu opioid receptor agonist, buprenorphine, with an opioid antagonist, naloxone, and it's used for the maintenance treatment of opioid use disorder. Uh, naloxone was added to buprenorphine to theoretically reduce diversion potential. So when it's taken orally, naloxone has minimal absorption, but it can theoretically precipitate withdrawal symptoms if given via injection. As for the national clinical guidelines that were published in CMAJ in March 2018, buprenorphine naloxone is currently the first-line opioid agonist therapy for opioid use disorder. It's been shown to be effective in reducing illicit opioid use and has lower overdose risk and fewer side effects and medication interactions than methadone. Uh, buprenorphine naloxone is taken sublingually and takes approximately 5 to 10 minutes to dissolve with the peak effect in 1.5 to 3 hours and also has a half-life of 24 to 40 hours. And um, you mentioned this concept of diversion. Can you just explain to our listeners what, what that means and, and how this particular medication has been made to, to reduce diversion? So, uh, so I think that historically, drugs that uh, have some ability to agonize opioid receptors have a potential for abuse. And uh, one of the things that is somewhat unique about Suboxone or the buprenorphine-naloxone combination is that if you try and crush it or alter it for injectable purposes, as opposed to taking it in its intended oral fashion or sublingually, uh, then it is not effective uh, as the naloxone component then becomes very active. So the opioid antagonist portion becomes very active intravenously. And so it is not a good candidate for diversion uh, and hence is more effective as a replacement therapy. And are we seeing the rates of diversion go down as, as the availability of buprenorphine naloxone has increased? Yeah, so certainly uh, one of the things about this medication is that it is just not effective when used in that fashion. And so I would argue that uh, that most people who may try and uh, abuse this medication would be unsuccessful after after simply one try. So, uh, so theoretically, this is one of the advantages of this medication over a medication like methadone. Uh, for the treatment of uh, opiate use disorder. Um, in terms of how the diversion rates compare directly, uh, I'm not aware of any evidence that uh, that compares the two head-to-head, but I suspect that uh, Suboxone uh, would always be uh, a better option uh, because it just can't be abused in the, in the manner in which uh, other opiates are abused. Certainly, we're seeing the recommendations across guidelines um, strongly supporting the use of Suboxone, as you say. Um, and just to kind of help navigate our readers, is it is it the same as take-home naloxone kits that are available at the pharmacy? Yeah, so that's a good question, and I think important to differentiate. It is not the same. Uh, the take-home naloxone kits are meant purely as a overdose reversal agent. Uh, so this is a harm reduction measure that is present now in the communities. Uh, it can be administered intramuscularly via injection or intranasally. There is no health card needed to pick up these kits, and you can get one or two of them with very little hassle from most pharmacies. Uh, provincial guidelines, of course, come into play here, so I'm talking about the Ontario program primarily. Uh, but this is uh, definitely something that is helping from a public health perspective and uh, and and as a harm reduction measure is uh, on the streets being used by uh, uh, people who abuse opiates in order to reverse overdose. It is not a treatment for opiate use disorder, however. 
Okay, so would it be fair to say to listeners that the take-home naloxone kit is, is primarily reserved for kind of an acute reversal, whereas the suboxone is, is much more for kind of maintenance or, or, or chronic therapy? Absolutely, I think that's fair. So going into that, but who, who should um, suboxone be offered to? What type of patient? So as we say in our article, buprenorphine naloxone should be offered to all patients with opioid use disorder in virtually every care setting. So that includes primary care and in emergency departments. We know that medications for opioid use disorder are associated with reduced all-cause and opioid-related mortality in opioid overdose survivors. And there have been numerous studies on this topic. So there was a study published in JAMA in 2015 that showed that emergency department-initiated suboxone treatment with continuation in primary care is associated with increased engagement in treatment. And we know that many emergency departments have now launched programs that have incorporated emergency department-initiated treatment with suboxone and outpatient rapid-access addictions follow-up. We also know that buprenorphine naloxone is easy to prescribe and also allows for safe home induction for patients that are not currently in opioid withdrawal. Um, so you mentioned that there's been startup of, of suboxone availability, both in the emergency department and in primary care. Are there any challenges having these two sectors speak to each other about the same patients as they transfer from secondary to primary care and back over to um, secondary care? I think there's always going to be issues when transitioning from different care environments, but a lot of the programs that have offered uh, suboxone treatment in the emergency department have also facilitated rapid referral to addictions follow-up. So these programs are often linked with the emergency department. So the information that was gathered in the emergency department is sent to the pharmacy and also to these uh, rapid access addictions centers. So the continuity of care is better when there is um, organization that way. Yeah, and I can just add that anecdotally in the inner city health environment where we practice outpatient medicine at St. Michael's Hospital, I think a few years ago, the comfort level was very low uh, with community prescribers uh, facilitating suboxone for patients in the outpatient setting, even if they had been started in an addiction management clinic or in the emergency department or in some other setting. Uh, now that has, that has drastically changed. So as uh, primary care physicians become more comfortable with prescribing suboxone and using it as part of their practice as a safe option, uh, then the facility increases. And I think uh, overall, if people become more comfortable with these medications, this will only continue to improve uh, the ease with which patients transition from these environments. How does a physician determine if their patient needs to be prescribed suboxone? Yeah, so that's an excellent question, but I think one that is uh, quite difficult to answer because a large percentage of it depends on patient preference. So uh, we try and meet the patient whenever possible where they are at. And if they are not ready for opiate use disorder treatment, then it is difficult uh, often in the emergency department setting, especially where you are limited by time and resources to convince them of its appropriateness for their condition. Uh, and this is one of the things that, uh, or one of the challenges we faced with our program was trying to get patient buy-in to uh, following up at the Rapid Access Addictions Medicine Clinic and overcoming some of the stigma that patients would often feel about their disorder and about what they had heard about addictions treatment and, and stigma surrounding methadone and other things that sort of historically are, are present in the community. And so uh, 
when we first started this program, buy-in was low. Amongst physicians, it was low, and amongst patients, it was low. And, and it has increased over time, primarily through a couple of different measures. So one is education, um, making sure that all the physicians in our emergency department received uh, several options for in-services and ongoing education about how these packages would be dispensed for Suboxone um, dosing, for usage, for indications, for follow-up. And then uh, on the second phase, sort of what happens after you leave the emergency department, how are you going to receive care at a rapid, rapid access addictions medicine clinic? Where is that clinic going to be located? How are we going to track you down uh, in an often marginalized patient population? How are we going to communicate with these patients? How are we going to encourage them to attend follow-up appointments? So, uh, so that was the second part of what needed to occur. And of course, there have been many iterations of this throughout the length of this project even already, uh, culminating with what we now have, which is that even if patients decline initial treatment in the emergency department with Suboxone and or decline rapid access addictions medicine clinic referral, we will often initiate these services on their behalf and try and track them down a day later or two days later and, and make you know, follow-up calls and, and try and engage them in, in care in other ways if possible. Uh, and I think that has uh, proven to uh, be successful in terms of increasing the number of patients who make these follow-up appointments and stick with the treatment plan uh, long-term. That's really interesting. Certainly this is an area of medicine where that patient partnership is crucial. Do you still find that it's the treatment um, or addiction doctor leading care in this environment, or is that now being slowly more explored by emergency physicians and, and family care doctors? Yeah, so that's also an excellent question, and I think that it, it comes into the second part of this, which is how do you choose a patient population for whom you feel Suboxone may su be successful? And I think uh, part of it also is identifying patients that are likely to buy into the treatment and those who are going to be at high risk. So in an initial visit in the emergency department, uh, this treatment is being offered to patients in acute withdrawal. So it's not being offered to the patient with opioid intoxication uh, for whom it is you know, potentially inappropriate as it may precipitate withdrawal. It's being offered to a patient that's already uh, withdrawing from medication or has come in seeking care for one reason or another. Uh, and those are the patients in whom Suboxone uh, is most likely to be successful and is most appropriate. Uh, there is increasing evidence that uh, prescribing Suboxone to patients who are acutely intoxicated with opioids or not in withdrawal for a possible home induction later on, uh, either that day or the next day, uh, may be an option in the in the future. It's it's not ready for prime time yet. I think you know the evidence is mounting up though that people are becoming more and more comfortable with it. Um, but uh, but ideally, you know, we are identifying patients uh, with significant opiate risk. Uh, in withdrawal based on a COW score, which is a clinical withdrawal uh, scale, uh, and, and patient preference, of course, comes into play as well. Now, further to your question about whether or not we are usurping the, the, uh, the addiction medicine physician, of course, we're just starting this in the emergency department with the idea that we may never see these patients again. Uh, and so I think the, the burden of follow-up and planning is still uh, on the rapid access addiction medicine clinic physician. But I guess you could say that the third phase here is that as uh, provider comfort increases in the community and or if your community does not have access to a rapid access addiction medicine clinic, that the primary care physicians could comfortably and somewhat easily take over this care with minimal education about prescribing Suboxone uh, 
in, in terms of how safe Suboxone is and how easy it is for them to manage these patients as outpatients after an initial induction attempt. Certainly, and, and we've talked a bit about the populations who have an acute withdrawal, um, and I'm just thinking also about the populations that do present to primary care physicians more commonly, um, who may have an element of withdrawal, but certainly less acute than, than others, and that would be those who, um, on high-dose opioids with chronic non-cancer pain. How would you envision Suboxone into their treatments? Yeah, so certainly I think uh, that is a case that occurs in primary care. And if the physician prescriber or, or nurse practitioner prescriber, the, the most responsible practitioner, is comfortable with uh, starting Suboxone in that setting for a patient who is either in acute withdrawal and meets criteria or is in moderate or mild withdrawal, and you're thinking about you know following them up within 24 hours or for a possible home induction, uh, I think that it definitely, definitely has a role in that setting. Uh, it doesn't always need to be an emergency department uh, visit uh, for acute withdrawal, or it doesn't have to be an emergency department-induced acute withdrawal where a patient has come in with a serious overdose and has been given you know, only the reversal agent and is now presenting in withdrawal. So uh, I think that you know, meeting the patient where they are uh, and getting their buy-in is, is often easier in a setting where they are with a primary care practitioner who they trust and uh, with whom they have a long relationship, and, uh, and they book the appointment specifically to talk about that. And, and certainly we foresee uh, a broader role for, uh, for Suboxone in that setting in the future. Can any doctor or nurse practitioner prescribe uh, buprenorphine naloxone? Is there any specialized training that's required? So any physician and nurse practitioner in Canada can prescribe Suboxone. However, the provincial educational recommendations for prescribing vary. So we know that Health Canada recently removed the methadone exemption, and some provinces such as Saskatchewan and Alberta have previously required a methadone exemption to prescribe Suboxone. Um, the provincial guidelines now to prescribe Suboxone vary, and some recommend, while others require the completion of an educational program on opioid dependence and Suboxone training. Um, but we still believe that prescribing Suboxone is easier than prescribing methadone despite the methadone exemption being removed. So for example, in Ontario, providers who wish to prescribe methadone need to give written notification to the licensing body regarding their intent to prescribe methadone for opioid use disorder, complete a course on opioid dependence treatment, complete a minimum of one day's preceptorship with a pre-approved methadone prescriber, or participate in a methadone preceptorship simulation course, and they need to be assessed in their methadone prescribing practice for opioid use disorder one year after they begin prescribing. Since these provincial guidelines vary and are being continually updated in response to the opioid epidemic in Canada, we advise that all physicians and nurse practitioners should become familiar with their provincial educational recommendations prior to prescribing any opioid agonist treatment. And are there any resources that one can find in order to receive training on prescribing Suboxone? Yeah, so we included in the appendix section of our paper many excellent resources and courses are available. So some examples are the Suboxone Training Program, um, the Center of Addiction and Mental Health Opioid Dependence Treatment Core Course, and the Metafee Provider Education Presentations and E-Modules. How does Suboxone compare to methadone? Are there situations when it's better to prescribe methadone? So, uh, so I've expected this question, and I've been dreading it a little bit because I suspect it may be the most polarizing uh, question that we answer today. 
Um, certainly methadone historically has been a drug uh, and treatment that has been used with great effect, and I'm choosing my words carefully, in the treatment of opiate use disorder. I suspect we're witnessing right now a changing of the guard and, uh, and that Suboxone will gradually overtake methadone as the treatment of choice for opiate use disorder, uh, especially in the settings we're talking about. Uh, and there are a number of reasons for this. Um, mostly it's safety record, it's uh, ease of administration, it's availability uh, to be prescribed by primary care practitioners, but also because of its uh, requirement for less stringent follow-up, uh, again, due largely to its safety. Uh, if there are advantages to methadone, I feel that they are mostly related to patient factors. So, for example, methadone is often prescribed visualized dispensing, uh, you know, daily visits, uh, and so this allows you to get a handle on patients who may be difficult to reach for other reasons. Also, some patients will prefer it. So patient preference uh, plays in here as well. Methadone is a full agonist as opposed to a partial agonist. Uh, and there are patients for whom that is a better choice based on how they feel that their particular needs for treatment uh, vary. Uh, and so we are certainly not advocating for a replacement of methadone with Suboxone for all patients across the board, especially patients who are stably treated on methadone over a long period of time. But we are aware now of uh, increasing evidence comparing methadone to Suboxone, and I think you know we're still awaiting what the final word will be. And we are probably going to see an increase in Suboxone usage compared to methadone and some people transitioning from methadone to Suboxone. Right, and there's no obvious situation where you would choose methadone over Suboxone, is that right? That is correct, according to my best understanding of the current evidence. And are there any particular patient groups in which you would um, advocate Suboxone over methadone? Yeah, so I think uh, there are groups that would prefer Suboxone uh, over methadone, mostly for its ease of use. So, so patients who have jobs who can't go to daily dispensing or would find it difficult to make these regular appointments, who prefer to be on more, you know, sort of once weekly or once monthly visits, uh, patients who uh, feel stigmatized by being on methadone or having to visit addictions clinics and so would be less compliant with follow-up or care if they were on uh, a medication like methadone. Uh, patients who can't deal with the side effects of methadone and would prefer something that doesn't have any potential for uh, you know, drowsiness or addiction in its own right or less potential, certainly, uh, like Suboxone does. So I think that those are the patient populations that we're, that we're really trying to uh, reach here, but certainly Suboxone is appropriate for almost all patients with opiate use disorder, uh, with very few exceptions, and, uh, and has proven to be safe and, uh, and effective in, in almost all settings. Right. And would you advocate that the, the Suboxone is safe to use during pregnancy? So Suboxone is safe to prescribe and initiate in pregnancy. As we say in our article that uh, clinicians treating pregnant patients with opioid use disorder should always consider um, involving a specialist. Uh, the recent changes with Suboxone during pregnancy um, came about this year. So pregnancy was initially a contraindication, but uh, Health Canada removed it as a contraindication for Suboxone. And the British Columbia Centre on Substance Use have also released guidelines for managing opioid use disorder in pregnant patients. Um, and they state that Suboxone can be initiated with appropriate monitoring during pregnancy or continued for patients already clinically stable on Suboxone prior to pregnancy. 
So we say that we shouldn't transition between opioid agonist treatments if patients are already clinically stable because this increases the risk of withdrawal symptoms and relapse. And as always, we say it is important to screen for substance use during the first prenatal visit and throughout the pregnancy and postpartum when clinically relevant. And the research that has looked at opioid agonist treatment for pregnant patients with opioid disorder has shown that it significantly reduces or eliminates non-medical opioid use and associated health risks, such as risk of accidental overdose, and also improves neonatal outcomes, so longer gestation, higher live birth rates, higher birth rates, and earlier discharge from hospital. Great. I'm just going to pick up on something there, and um, it is a bit of a hard question, but it's a long-term data out there for uh, for neonates and, and children whose mothers have been on Suboxone. So to my knowledge, there are no long-term data right now looking at Suboxone and um, long-term neonatal outcomes. We do have the data for methadone, but to my knowledge, we don't have um, the comparison right now between Suboxone and methadone. Yeah, and I would certainly echo that. I think that uh, what I will often tell learners uh, in, in environments where we're discussing research is a lack of evidence doesn't necessarily mean bad evidence. So uh, I think we are awaiting these long-term studies. They will, they will almost certainly be done. Uh, and, uh, you know, of course, we're very optimistic that they will show, uh, you know, non-inferiority of Suboxone to methadone in the setting in which you were describing. Uh, but I think at this time, to my knowledge also, they don't exist. And what about for other patient populations? Um, so for a patient who drinks alcohol, is Suboxone contraindicated? Yeah, so just briefly, I mean, if we're talking about casual use drinking or moderate drinking, uh, so absolutely not. Uh, but as with any other drug in this class, there is some risk of sedation from other medications that you may take that may cause sedation risk. So there certainly uh, should be you know, caution used if consuming alcohol with any drug that may cause sedation. Um, and at high enough doses, you know, suboxone and alcohol could be potentially harmful. So while not strictly contraindicated, caution should be advised. Right. Um, and out of interest, would, would the naloxone component uh, be of any kind of key importance if, if there was somebody who did heavily drink or that would just re reverse the buprenorphine, wouldn't it? The, yeah, so the it's a good question again because the the, uh, the drug suboxone is a little tricky with its with its absorption, but the naloxone co component is very poorly absorbed from the from the GI tract. So really, you're not getting much effect from the naloxone component uh, at all from from suboxone used appropriately. Uh, and so really this shouldn't present any kind of problem to patients uh, taking opiates or consuming alcohol or other sedatives or hypnotics uh, if used in the correct fashion. Having said that, there is an increasing body of evidence around naloxone when used orally for a number of conditions and naltrexone, which is a similar drug uh, for a number of conditions, including alcohol use disorder. And so uh, while it's not strictly contraindicated, I think we don't know uh, at higher absorption doses or or uh, with with inappropriate use, uh, what may happen with an interaction between alcohol and suboxone? It's unlikely to be harmful beyond what I've described, uh, but but we don't know for sure because the GI absorption is just so poor, and so most of it stays in the gut. Is there any situation in which suboxone is not recommended? 
Yeah, so uh, uh, not specifically. Suboxone certainly has a plethora of indications for patients in uh, withdrawal to some extent. It does, however, precipitate withdrawal or can precipitate withdrawal in patients who have you know, high-dose opiate use disorder over time uh, or who are acutely intoxicated, and that's because of its high affinity as a partial agonist uh, without, uh, strictly speaking, a full agonism binding mechanism. And so consequently, you can precipitate withdrawal in acutely intoxicated patients, uh, which is not great and, and would not lead to their buy-in uh, for further treatment, it seems. Um, and if adulterated or used inappropriately, of course, there is a risk of withdrawal as well. Uh, so that's that's the sort of the first line uh, reason why you may want, not want to give it in, in those situations. Additionally, if, if given uh, intravenously or intramuscularly, naloxone, as, as we've discussed, can have potential withdrawal side effects. It can also uh, leave you open to all of the other rarer side effects of naloxone, uh, like, you know, fetal maternal distress if the patient is in the late stages of pregnancy or pulmonary edema if the patient has heart problems. Uh, now, it's unlikely to occur at low doses. It's unlikely to occur with appropriate use, but we can't speak really to what would happen if it's used incorrectly at higher doses or for a patient who's used to high-dose opiates. Great. Thank you. That's really clear. I know we've touched upon some of this already, but we'll shift the conversation towards administration of Suboxone. Um, can Suboxone be given right away or should the patient be in withdrawal? So patients should ideally be in moderate opioid withdrawal, and how we define that is we use the clinical opioid withdrawal scale or CALS score, and it should ideally be over 12. Um, there have been guidelines published on like how long you should wait after the last opioid use. So uh, recommendations are 12 to 16 hours since the last dose of a short-acting opioid. So this includes heroin, morphine, hydrocodone, immediate release oxycodone or 17 to 24 hours since the last dose of an intermediate-acting opioid. So this includes slow-release oral morphine, controlled-release hydromorphone, and sustained-release oxycodone, or 30 to 48 hours since the last dose of a long-acting opioid. So this would be something like methadone. And the reason why we do that is that buprenorphine is a partial opioid agonist, and it has high affinity but low activity at the mu opioid receptor, so it rapidly displaces any full agonist opioids, which leads to a net decrease in the opioid effect and um, precipitates opioid withdrawal symptoms. And so when we do administration of Suboxone, we always suggest that you witness the first ingestion just to ensure that the tablet is taken appropriately and it's fully dissolved sublingually. So you should advise the patient to keep the tablet under their tongue until it dissolves, and that can take up to 10 minutes. And patients should be advised to avoid swallowing, talking, eating, drinking, and smoking during this time. If patients are not in um, opioid withdrawal at the time, you can also prescribe take-home Suboxone for them to take when they are in withdrawal. And although this isn't in guidelines yet, there have been emerging case reports about the Bernese method, which has suggested success with microdosing suboxone in patients that are not currently in withdrawal. So this process involves repetitive administration of very small suboxone doses with sufficient dosing intervals. So usually every 12 hours, that shouldn't precipitate severe withdrawal symptoms for patients that are concurrently taking opioids. And because of the long receptor binding time, suboxone will accumulate at the receptor, and over time it will replace an increasing amount of the full opioid agonist at the opioid receptor. And the thought with the Bernice method is that um, the 
there shouldn't be severe withdrawal symptoms when patients are given these very small doses of Suboxone. What kind of follow-up should happen after the initial prescription? Yeah, so I think in our department and in the setting in which we've been using it and with the emergency department induction, as opposed to the the clinical setting, um, we are only witnessing really that first dose. And if unless that first dose is occurring on a Friday when we don't think we can arrange for rapid access addictions medicine clinic follow-up on the Saturday or Sunday, uh, we are rarely giving patients more than that dose to sort of take home and, and have it prescribed uh, for a number of days. Uh, whereas in the clinical setting, you may choose to do that based on your familiarity with the patient and with their follow-up plan. But in general, your initial dose on day one is a is a maximum of about 12 milligrams uh, because we don't want to you know give too much initially for the reasons that we've already mentioned. We would generally start with two to four milligrams when the cow score is greater than or equal to 12. Uh, we would re- reassess these patients ideally, you know, 30 to 60 minutes after the first dose, uh, even up to 90 minutes, depending on how they're feeling, to see if their withdrawal has been managed, uh, if their cow score has come down, right? Doses can then be increased by two to four milligrams a visit to control withdrawal symptoms. Uh, there's a maximum of 24 milligrams a day recommended in Canada at this time. Uh, patients should be assessed daily during the induction period to ensure no withdrawal symptoms. So this is where the rapid access addictions medicine clinic comes in or the clinical setting where you're seeing your patients daily just for a sort of a, a reassessment of their symptoms. Uh, the target dose generally ends up being about 12 to 16 milligrams per day. And I think, you know, anecdotally and just from patients that I followed, I, I think that probably holds true with uh, the literature. Uh, the, and this is usually accomplished by the end of that first week. Uh, and then doses should be tit- titrated at that time, you know, two to four milligrams at a time to achieve an optimal stable dose that can sustain, you know, 24-hour dosing intervals without withdrawal symptoms and you know, not causing any medication-related intoxication or sedation for the patient. And I think at that point, uh, practitioners in the community are becoming increasingly more comfortable with giving, you know, week-long prescriptions, even if the patient visits the pharmacy daily in order to pick up the prescription and or, uh, you know, visits stretching into the every two weeks or every month timeline just to check in with the physician or, or nurse practitioner when the patient is stable on a certain dose. Now, as with methadone, uh, the goal ideally uh, will be to have the patient taper off this long-term stable dose over a lengthy period of time, but some patients will end up being on Suboxone long-term if they're unable to complete this taper due to increasing withdrawal symptoms. Uh, and so there will always be the need for regular, somewhat regular follow-up uh, with Suboxone. However, that can be pushed to every two weeks to a month comfortably, I think, by a lot of clinical practitioners or rapid access addictions medicines clinics can hand back over to the clinical practitioners uh, in order to facilitate that sort of more lengthy follow-up and less resource-intensive for both the patient and the system uh, kind of visit schedule. We briefly touched upon there a maximum prescribed dose or a dose where clinicians feel quite comfortable to prescribe. Are there any patient populations you think might pose a challenge to the current uh, legislation? Yeah, so I think that there are always going to be patients who will choose to circumvent or who are already on, uh, you know, super, super therapeutic doses of opiates to begin with, or will be concomitantly injecting other medications or other opiates or sedatives or or misusing other uh, drugs of abuse, or will not engage in follow-up and will take these medications sort of irregularly or sporadically and end up with withdrawal symptoms. 
uh, and those are all difficult to manage complications of any patient who you are trying to treat who has opiate use disorder. However, I would say that they are more easily managed in my experience on Suboxone than on uh, medications like Methadone uh, because of the ease of use and safety profile of Suboxone. When should a patient stop taking Suboxone? So in, in an ideal treatment scenario, a patient would obtain the stable dose as described, and then after a period of time with which the patient and practitioner are comfortable, a wean of, you know, two milligrams uh, you know, per day, per week, uh, depending on the patient's comfort with withdrawal symptoms and their total maximum dose, could then be initiated, pausing at each uh, set point where, you know, you've decreased the dose to assess for withdrawal side effects and patient comfort with the ongoing wean and life circumstances and so forth. But in, in an ideal setting, the patients would slowly wean over time at patient preference uh, with provider support uh, to an ideal dose of zero at some point. Uh, recognizing that some patients on Suboxone, like with methadone, will end up being on a stable dose for a long time or even indefinitely. So a lot of what we've talked about is service reconfiguration and, and a, an integration of primary and secondary care services to manage uh, these types of patients where multidisciplinary input can, can be across the board, really. How far away is Canada from an integrated pathway in managing these types of patients? I think that fortunately or unfortunately, when this was recognized as a serious issue or, or has been recognized increasingly in Canada as a serious issue, money has flowed and resources have flowed from the government, but perhaps not always with the best organizational management at the grassroots level. So duplication of services was happening and you know multiple addiction medicines clinic that weren't necessarily communicating with each other and patients may have been visiting you know multiple centers, emergency departments, their, their primary care practitioner and addiction medicine clinic without any sort of oversight. I mean, that, that certainly was occurring. Uh, there was also an issue with, you know, the government uh, giving out grants or making funds available and resources available for different organizations and institutions without a clear idea of how those funds were initially going to be used or a concerted strategy. So in Durham region, where uh, where I practice emergency medicine and where this study took place, uh, there has increasingly been more interdepartmental collaboration with outpatient addiction medicine clinics and making you know family doctors and emergency doctors aware and nurse practitioners aware of how this initiative is being rolled out. One of the things that was unique about our environment is it's not a major urban center and so it is perhaps easier in the community to facilitate this because you have a limited number of practitioners and a limited number of uh, environments uh, where patients can receive care in the you know the downtown Toronto St. Michael's Hospital milieu there are there are numerous academic hospitals and numerous addiction medicine programs and uh, and so the competition for resources and for patients and the potential for duplication and complications in that setting is high uh, I think more broadly, this speaks to the need for uh, for a government strategy around you know electronic medical records and and managing you know patients longitudinally even when they access care in a number of different environments. And I think that's a question that's really beyond the scope of uh, today's discussion. 
but uh, but certainly this is a challenge. And uh, when when programs spring up independently of one another, it doesn't necessarily help the patient on the ground. So uh, I would encourage my colleagues in any setting, community, academic, uh, research, um, or public health, uh, to come together within their area, within their, their LIN, their local uh, health network, within uh, their academic institution, to formulate at the very least a plan for their own jurisdiction uh, that may dovetail nicely and allow patients to be followed longitudinally, uh, even at the expense of you know, not having a current provincial or national model for this care. Uh, I would encourage you know, lawmakers and, and people who are in public health to uh, to spearhead uh, the implementation of more lateralized uh, uh, programs that allow access for patients across a variety of geographic locations uh, or hospital settings. You've mentioned a local initiative in Durham where the uh, success of this project took off, and that's really great. Are there other pockets in Canada um, that are that are leading as local champions in in this type of care? And where can readers expect to see some of the research and, and clinical output coming out from? So I think that uh, in downtown Toronto, uh, prompted mostly by the opioid epidemic in, in Canada, there are a number of academic centers uh, that are leading the charge and trying to put together uh, implementation plans for Suboxone. So most notably in the St. Michael's Hospital Emergency Department and the Women's College Hospital. Um, I think, uh, you know, additionally, on the other side of the country in BC, where the downtown east side has faced these struggles and challenges for a long time with the opiate epidemic, I think they also are involved in this research at the grassroots level. I think one of the difficulties with this, if anything, is that a lot of the people who engage in this sort of care are not primarily researchers. Uh, so perhaps the published data lags behind the actual care on the ground. Uh, but uh, but I anticipate great things in the future, and I, I think that uh, this kind of work is going to occur at any major urban center, academic center in Canada over the next few years, certainly. Tina and Adam, thank you very much for being on, on the CMAJ podcast for this topic. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. I've been speaking with Dr. Tina Hu, family medicine resident physician at St. Michael's Hospital, and Dr. Adam Pyle, a staff family physician at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, who also practices emergency medicine at Lake Ridge Health Oshawa in Oshawa, Ontario. To read the practice article they co-authored, visit cmha.ca. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to CMHA Podcasts on Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. While you're there, you can browse and listen to our many past episodes, and you can leave us a rating. I'm Dr. Neil Chanchthani, Associate Editor for CMHA. Thank you for listening. <laughs>